0: James Chapter three. We're going to read in the New Living Translation. We've been looking at this chapter, these books, or excuse me, these epistles in the NLT, because it gives us a modern reading, which helps us a lot. I've tried to do my best to study deeply ahead, so that if there's anything that the dynamic equivalence translation is missing, I bring it out. but it's pretty much what you're hoping, and what you see is what you get. Wizywig, what you see is what you get. Verse one. Chapter 3. Dear brothers and sisters, don't, excuse me, not, dear brothers says, not many of you should become teachers in the church, for we who teach will be judged more strictly. Stop there. King James says, be not many masters, knowing that we shall receive the greater condemnation. So you're, you shouldn't aspire. To be a teacher. Now, imagine also this is fifteen years after Christ's ascension; they're still working out a lot of doctrine. Even Paul comes along later and says, in Timothy, they desire to be teachers of law, knowing not what they affirm or what they speak of. And so there was an issue because they were taking the law, trying to get gospel out of it, and they just weren't equipped to. And so James is saying, "Listen, leave that to us." And this really invokes back to Acts, where it says, "We will give ourselves to the word of God and prayer." Because they've got to go back to the law of God, and then they've got to extract gospel doctrine out of it. They've got to go back to the law of God and see how that now comes through the cross of Calvary. And it's an apostolic foundation. But this truth holds today, don't try to be a leader in a local church. Let God promote you. You're either called or you're not. You're either called or you're not. And if you're not, you're going to really hurt yourself because the second you start saying, I'm called, the second you start saying, I'm a teacher, the second you start saying, you're an apostle, the devil marks you and comes after you pretty hard. And you'll receive the greater judgment. You'll be judged more strictly. And some of you can't even handle a good correction from somebody who loves you. Pastor Barkley taught me that several years ago when he was teaching me some stuff about how to pastor. He said, son, if they can't receive a rebuke from you in private, someone who lives for them, They'll never handle the attacks of the last day. So we have to keep that in mind. Verse 2. Indeed, we all make many mistakes. For if we could control our tongues, we would be perfect and could also control ourselves in every other way. He admits we all make many mistakes. That includes leaders. That includes laity. And really, we see a giant call here to all sorts of mercy and compassion. We see a call to mercy and compassion. If we're all making many mistakes, how about we cut each other some slack? We ought to be able to cut some, some slack. Love covers a multitude of sins. So we got to keep that in mind. But it also begins to give us the clue, the clue here. If we could control our tongues, let's work on doing that. If we could control our tongues, we would be perfect. It doesn't say we can't, but if we could... We know it's a challenge. If we could control our tongues, we would be perfect and could also control ourselves in every other way. So this kind of gives us some more faith doctrine, foundational teaching, that if you can speak to yourself, you can control yourself in every other way. How about speak to lust? How about speak to greed? How about speak to appetites? How about put your flesh under? How do you do that? You don't click your heels and hope for the best. What you have to do is you have to speak to yourself and say, no flesh, I rebuke that. I refuse to be hungry right now. I'm fasting. No flesh, we don't have the money to spend on that. No flesh, we're not taking that vacation. We got other things to do. No flesh, we're not going to think that way. Amen. Amen. You can speak to whatever the mountain is, whatever the desire is, whatever the appetite is. Amen, Amen. and you should. You should speak to it because your answer is in your mouth. James says very clearly, it's why we're reading the New Living Translation, if we could control our mouth, we could control every other circumstance. Amen? So, okay, so line it up. Where, Where are you struggling? Where does your flesh own you? What's the thing God's been dealing with us about? And you can begin to speak to it. Let's read the verse again. If we could control our tongues, we would be perfect and could also conduct ourselves or control ourselves in every other way. Control your mouth, you can control yourself. So where do you fail? Where are you struggling? Where do you stink? Where do you come up short? What's the thing God's been dealing with you about for 20 years? And are you speaking to it? Do you have that index card with five verses that address vanity, vain imaginations? Are you speaking to it regularly? If it was a doctor telling you you're going to die, would you obey it more faithfully? Really, we're not going anywhere because we don't consistently do the word. We don't go anywhere because we don't consistently do the word. We don't go anywhere because we don't consistently do the word. You don't change from year to year because you don't consistently do the word you know to do. You do the word enough to get some breathe room. And then you go right back to wherever you were. So what will you do to change it? Verse 3. He goes home, goes to drive the point home. We can make a large horse go wherever we want by means of a small bit in its mouth. We know he's talking about the tongue. If we can control a big horse with this little bitty thing in its mouth, well, I'm not saying you're as big as a horse, but your pride might be. Your greed might be. Your appetite at Golden Corral might be getting on Zulily or Amazon or Fanatics or whatever your thing is at eBay, that appetite might be as big as a horse. But if we can control horses with these little bitty bits in their mouths, and you and I, James is teaching us, we can control ourselves with our mouth. You speak to yourself. How does all authority work? Come here, son, sit down. Come here, sweetie, don't do that. Stop in the name of the law. Amen. The police even have what they call command language. And they start off by saying, man, would you mind stepping out of the car? And they escalate up to where now it's full of expletives and you don't know what's going to happen next. But if they get to that, that's your fault. I don't feel bad for anybody that gets shot. And that may offend you, but you don't you don't know the police life. They just want to go home, too. Why did they have to pull you over? So they have command language. Ma'am, do you mind to step out of the car? Just step over here, ma'am. I've seen them. They're polite, but they escalate up to command language. We're still being polite with the belligerent rapist. We're being polite with the belligerent thief. We're being polite with the belligerent armed robber called flesh and appetite. We're being polite with something that needs to be put down. We can command it. If we can control a horse, we can control ourselves. If I can control a horse... I can control my mind. If I can control a horse, I can control my mouth. If I can control my horse, I can control my spending. If I can control a horse, I can control my appetites. And we know where we're weak, so before we get there, we should say, "All right, Lord, you know we're going to the family reunion. It's going to be a spread. And I didn't walk 2 miles this morning so I can eat 30,000 calories tonight." Someone put a restraint and will put a knife to my throat. And you can control yourself if you want to. Amen. Amen. Verse 4 says, And a small rudder makes a huge ship turn wherever the pilot chooses. You can turn where you choose. And I will tell you, you are where you want to be. You are where you want to be. Your life is where you want to be. That's not true. Prove it. I don't want to be here. Then be somewhere else. You've been taught how to be where you need to be. And if you're not there, it's because you don't want to really be there. So let's be honest. At least... Say, I know I'm supposed to be over there, but I really, I really just want to be here. I like it here. I know I'm supposed to be at the equator, but I'd rather be at the Tropic of Cancer. I know I'm supposed to be in Hawaii, but I'd rather crash land on that island of pygmy cannibals. Folks, folks are where they want to be. James says, A small rudder makes the ship go wherever the captain wants. And that little rudder called your tongue turns your life wherever you want. You and I are where we want to be. And if you don't like where you are, then start changing the direction of your life. We see the parallel going right down the verses. This little thing called our tongue steers massive courses of events. God Almighty was born of a virgin. Became a man who preached with a tongue like us. And those sermons saved humanity. Those sermons built faith to raise the dead. A little tongue cursed Israel and brought it to nothing. It still struggles to be something today. Small rudder makes a huge ship turn wherever the pilot chooses to go. Even though the winds are strong. Doesn't matter what's blowing against you, your tongue overrides it. We know how these sailship works. We know that when we see it, we've seen the pictures, we've seen it in the movies that sailship, that man of war or whatever, that galley is leaning hard, and yet it's sailing right where the captain wants it to go. All those sails, all that wind, and this little rudder that's a fraction of the size of the whole ship and the lading says, nope, we're going there. And you and I can do the same if we want. But what it also takes on that deck is for that captain to call the shots and then that man to hold it. Steady as she goes, they say. That's gotta be our life. Steady as she goes. And you see them in the movies, they crank it and they hold it. And what happens if they let go? You even see them knock people down, break arms and cause all sorts of havoc. You can't let go, but we do because we're lazy and carnal. And really, truth be told, deep down, we don't really want to go where God wants us. We want to go over here and go to hell. We want to go to Pleasure Island where they turn all the boys into jackasses. If you know Pinocchio. (laughs) Steady as she goes so that you can finish your destiny and not die with some weird STD. Uh, Dr. Baidu Jr. was telling me... uh, I said, how's the, chiro- how's, not chiropractic, how's the pediatric work going? And he said, it's interesting, except for when 12-year-olds come in with STDs. And I said, uh, come again? He said, yeah. Uh, all the symptoms point to an STD. So I ask him in front of their parents, so um, are you sexually active? No. And he's like, yeah, I know what you have. There's only one way to get it. So the parents step out of the room, and the t- he said, these kids are smart. They Google it. He says, I know you can't tell my parents because of the law. But yeah, I'm sleeping around 12, syphilis. 12, that's my daughter's age. Pleasure Island, it may not turn you to a donkey, but it'll turn your vagina into a Petri dish of infection and disease. Amen. We're back on that again, I suppose. Maybe we never left. It's a demon. You can take it home with you if you want. Verse 5, in the same way, the tongue is a small thing that makes grand speeches, but a tiny spark can set a great forest on fire. This can be good when we preach the gospel and set people ablaze to go soul winning or repent. Or, oh my Lord, I worship you, oh God almighty, and hooping and hollering and shouting, building faith. Or we can provoke people to chaos like Hitler did with his grand speeches or any of our politicians do today when they grandstand and placate people. Verse 6, and the tongue is a flame of fire. Let's let that be holy fire. It is a world of wickedness, a whole world of wickedness, corrupting your entire body. Uh, So if you're not careful, we can curse ourselves with our mouth, just like we could steer our lives and discipline our flesh and say, oh, no, flesh, you're not having extra cake. You're not having any cake. Know what? We're going to bed hungry tonight because it's good to go to bed hungry you know what? We're not spending that. It's good to not spend it. We don't need it. We got too much junk anyway. We complain about it. We're watching uh, hoarders to motivate ourselves to not be one. Huh. You think a house falling on the wicked witch is scary? Wait till that box of magazines you haven't looked at since 73 falls on you. And every I need to start collecting the articles. You know, police were called to a welfare check when neighbors smelled something odd coming from their strange neighbor's house. And They found two little feet sticking out underneath the box of National Geographic. He wanted to be like the mummy in the magazine Till the rats and the cockroaches cleaned his insides out. we got so much stuff, we don't need to buy anything else. It's a whole world of wickedness corrupting your entire body. It can set your whole life on fire. Our tongue can burn our life to the ground. So anytime some of our fellow Christians say, well, that whole mouth thing, that whole confession thing is heresy, please explain how James, the apostle, who knew way more than these modernists do, said your mouth can burn your life to the ground. Was that hyperbole or did he mean it? He can set on fire the whole, your whole life for it is set on fire by hell itself. And then James turns sarcastic, verse 7, People can tame all kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and fish. I do not know we could tame fish. I don't know, maybe dolphins, but they're not fish, right? That's a mammal, porpoise. It's the best tuna of the sea. <laughs> but no one can tame the tongue. What an insult. We can tame reptiles. We can tame a snake. A snake charm. Tame birds teach it to ask for crackers. Quote scripture to you, I guess. But we can't tame our mouth. So all of a sudden, James is not real encouraging anymore. No one can tame the tongue. It is restless and evil, full of deadly poison. Sometimes it praises our Lord and Father, and sometimes it curses those who have been made in the image of God. And we have to be careful what our mouth says. We want to make sure that our mouth says what God's word says. We want to make sure our mouth says about people what God's word says about people. We want to make sure that we're not a gossip or a slanderer or a busybody. The Bible condemns all of that. All of those are sins we commit with the mouth. We want to make sure we don't come to church praising Jesus and then mocking his creation because we don't agree with them or we think they look different or what have you. We want to make sure that bitter and sweet don't fall forth from the same fountain. He gets into a geological analogy here. It's a hydrological analogy. A fountain, a spring, a karst can't produce bitter and sweet. It doesn't work. It's either all sweet or it's all bitter. It's either all acidic or it's all basic. And yet we somehow speak with forked tongues. And maybe it looks like I want Jesus, but I also want sin. And you can't have both. So which is genuine? Which is the genuine desire? Is it you genuinely want Jesus or is that the right confession? And your heart genuinely wants sin and corruption and perversion, and that's the real, genuine, authentic you, but you have to mask it with sweet water. You'd be better off just saying, I don't want to serve God right now. There's just some wild oats I want to sow, and I don't know what they grow. It's almost like Jack and the Magic Beanstalk. Got a bag of beans. I want to go sow them. You don't know what they're going to produce. You're not a seed scientist. You can't look at beans and tell me what they are. But when when you go to the world and you go to the devil and you say, let me sow some wild oats. They're called wild oats because you don't know exactly what they're going to bring up. What if it's a giant Venus flytrap and eats you? What if it's something poisonous and it kills you? So we stick with the word of God. We sow the seeds of righteousness that we might have righteousness. Like I said two Sundays ago, our lives are the result of what we sowed in the last season. If you don't like what you're harvesting, you have no one to blame but you. If you don't like where you are in life right now, you have no one to blame but you. You are the fruit of what you sowed. It's harvest season. You can only harvest Your acreage, and your acreage is your responsibility. So what did you sow there? And if you don't like it, plow it under, repent, and sow again in righteousness. And wait for harvest season and get back with the program. That's called repentance. It's wonderful. And then once you repent, don't ever need to repent again. Just keep sowing righteousness season after season after season. I just taught this about my two years at the Yamada and Sons Farm in Auburn, Washington. But that's about 90% of my preaching. It's heard by very few people. We just preach it and preach it and preach it until I'm called in to do damage control. Verse 9. Sometimes our mouth praises our Lord and Father. Sometimes it curses those who have been made in the image of God. And so blessing and cursing come pouring out of the same mouth. Surely, my brothers and sisters, this is not right. Does a spring of water bubble out with both fresh water and bitter? No, it's impossible hydrologically. Does a fig tree produce olives? No, a fig tree produces figs. And an olive tree produces olives. Or a grapevine, does it produce figs? No, a grapevine produces grapes. No, and you can't draw fresh water from a salty spring. What's coming out of our mouth is who we really are. And if we don't like what's coming out of our mouth, we can change it. We can change it. The whole title or whole thrust of James 3 is the mouth. Look at the mouth. Don't be many masters. Don't try to be a teacher. We offend all. We, we Our mouths get us in trouble. Even the best preacher says things he doesn't mean to say. As much as we speak, we're, we're held to a much higher standard. It takes a very disciplined preacher or speaker or... F- a professor to speak clearly, articulately, and not offend anybody. But at the end of the day, there's always somebody with thin skin and moral and mental instability who you could say things perfectly and they're going to find something wrong. You can't please those people. They're peripheral. Let them go. It takes a lot. But what if, what about, it's just you and God. Can you say the right thing? Here's the deal. You got to stop feeling sorry for yourself because when you do you curse yourself, and you have to stop running with people that feed your fear and your paranoia and your insecurity. Amen. Run with people stronger than you. you got, even in this church, some of you shouldn't be friends. What do you mean, pastor? All right. Let's clear this up before we make it muddy. Imagine this is a swim class, and in this swim class, we have a whole spectrum of swimmers. From the triathlete who swam the English Channel last year for fun, to the person who, like Andre the Giant in Princess Bride, he only doggy paddles. And everybody in between. And the two or three people who emotionally only doggy paddle. You shouldn't be friends. You're going to kill each other because you're weird. You're emotionally deficient. And yet you gravitate towards each other. If I'm coaching a swim class, I'm putting the English Channel swim, swimmer with the doggy paddler so that the doggy paddler can come up. You don't put weak swimmers together, but sometimes weak Christians flock to weak Christians who are emotionally unstable and you end up hurting yourself. Because I honestly don't see some of the weak women in this church running with the strong women in this church. Why are you insecure or you don't want to come up? You don't want to be challenged. You just want to drown. You should find people stronger than you and swim with them. This is how you get better at anything in life. It's not a hard concept. And you don't run with people as dirty as you are or dirtier. You find clean people to run with. These are simple concepts. But here we are, 21st century with mobile technology and 5Gs, going to activate the nanobots in that COVID shot you got. And we're too dumb to figure this out, so we run with dirty people. And we run with slow swimmers rather than finding somebody better than us and say, I want what you have and come up. Amen. Amen. No, you can't draw fresh water from a salty spring and weak people shouldn't run with weak people. Run with folks stronger than you. Verse 13, if you are wise and understand God's ways, prove it by living an honorable life. Honorable, holy, clean, God-fearing, God-first, I cannot preach it hard enough. We're living in the great falling away, and it takes place every service. People slowly turn off from God, one desire at a time, one friendship at a time, one TV show at a time. Whatever your weakness is, every time you give into it, you're turning slowly away from Christ. To repent is to turn back, but we're watching fewer and fewer people genuinely repent, and more and more people turn towards wickedness. If you are wise and understand God's ways, prove it by living an honorable life. That might be as simple as saying, Lord, show me where I dishonor you. We all dishonor God. I dishonor God. Don't mean to, don't want to. But the second I pick up on it, I have to repent. Father, did I dishonor you? Have I dishonored one of your children? Have I dishonored one of my fellow ministers? Father, I don't, I don't want to dishonor you. <laughs> one of my friends, one of my ministry friends we, like some of you guys, we text each other gifs and memes, and we harass each other. And he's an hour ahead. So Christmas Eve service, he sends me a hysterical Santa Claus getting hit by something. I don't remember what it was. It was hysterical. Right during worship Sunday, Christmas Eve. I mean, it was hysterical. And I was cracking up. But here's the worship team doing awesome. We're Oh, holy night. Stars are brightly shining. And my preacher friend is just sacrilegious. Because he's already out of church, the moron. So I take a picture of us worshiping. And I said, listen, man, I'm worshiping baby Jesus. Quit, leave, quit bothering me alone, jerk. So then he starts texting me more stuff. And I just ignore him. All right? Because I can't. I got to preach in like a minute. But my silence hurt his heart. So then he calls me late. He calls me the next morning, leaves this long voicemail. And it basically says, Pastor Chris, I value our friendship. Please forgive me. And he's so heartfelt. Please forgive me. I took our friendship too far. I, I, I dishonored you. I dishonored your church. I dishonored your God. Our God. Please forgive me. And I didn't mean anything by He did. I had to call him back. So I called him back in a strange voice, and I threatened to do things <laughs> if he ever dishonored my God like that again which was my way of saying it was nothing personal, man. What I appreciated was he felt like he dishonored me and it hurt his heart so bad he called to repent Christmas Day. And something as simple as that is worth a lot. We ought not be like these southern redneck believers who say, deal with it. Grow up. Come on. Got enough thicker skin that. Just deal with it. No, if I feel like I've offended you, I should reach out to you and say, if I did something, please forgive me. I may have taken that too far. And like Paul, uh, James begins, if we offend not in word, we're perfect. And if we know how easily we offend in word, we ought to be able to cut other people some slack when they offend in word. And rather than dwell in vain imaginations, go to them as the Bible teaches and say, hey, you said something. It's been bugging me. Could you at least clarify that? And if they double down on it, say, okay, I thought maybe so. I was going to give you the benefit. Could, could, Could you not say that again? I like what Pastor Brett calls it. Don't be socially stupid. What's it? No social IQ? Grow, Get some social IQ, emotional IQ. Be able to read people. And say, you know what? That might be a little sensitive subject. Let's not talk about it. But you're finding more and more people because they live like this. They have no social experience. They have no social IQ. They think in terms of like LOL and TBH. And I don't know. I, I, I use words with more vowels than that. and I actually use words. Let's finish this chapter up here. If you're wise and understand God's ways, prove it by living an honorable life, doing good works with the humility that comes from wisdom. Live honorable and do good works. Well, the best place to do good works is the local church. Show me another place you can do good works for the kingdom. And I remind you, this is written to saints in an assembly. So you can't even really get the fullness of these epistles if you're just a church hopper, church skipper, stay-at-home church person. Even this epistle written to the 12 tribes scattered was still given to those meeting in synagogues on the Sabbath, worshiping Jesus the Messiah, as best they understood, 15 years post-ascension. Where do we do good works? Well, of course, we can do it for our boss, but the implication is in the kingdom. And if you're not faithful to the kingdom, nobody's going to trust you with the opportunity to fulfill this verse. Doing good works with the humility that comes from wisdom. So wisdom will make you humble. But if you are bitterly jealous and there is selfish ambition in your heart, don't cover up the truth with boasting and lying. And so you see again, with this verse specifically, you see a lot of James comes back to the heart, comes back to the heart. We don't need to teach holiness to these believers. They have the law. It's written on the tables of their heart. These are devout Jews. These Jews are so devout, they recognize Jesus for who he was and they're suffering for it. They don't need the law thrown at them. They know it. They live it. Now we've got to nuance them with the heart. They have all the good works, but not from humility. They have all these other things, but they have issues of the heart that are just beneath the surface. And so you see Pastor James deal with it. If you're bitterly jealous, so we judge ourselves. Are we bitterly jealous? Maybe. And is there a selfish ambition in your heart? Are our motives selfish? What's the mo- we got to be willing to judge every motive. Why am I doing this? Why am I making this phone call? Why did I reach out to this person? Why did I say that? Why did I compliment that? Everything has a motive. Sometimes it's to fit in. Sometimes it's to make somebody laugh. Sometimes it's for a selfish reach and grab. Sometimes it's for a favor, but we have to judge it. If there's selfish ambition in your heart, don't cover up the truth with boasting and lying. Don't lie about it. Just be honest. Be honest with God. Be honest with each other. Father, I'm afraid. Father, I'm scared. Father, I'm terrified. Father, I need help. Be honest. Be honest. For jealousy and selfishness are not God's kind of wisdom. Such things are earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. So do you see jealousy is demonic? Jealousy is demonic. This is probably the one we deal with the most as Americans, especially with social media. Social media created a new psychological disorder that most of you have been touched by, myself included, called FOMO, fear of missing out. That sowed seeds of jealousy. You didn't know it even existed until you saw it on Instagram and saw all the fake photos of people enjoying their life there. They don't ever post divorce proceedings. They post the make-believe vacation in Bali. They post the make-believe vacation from Thailand. They don't show the fighting or the divorce proceedings or the divorce court or the kids' broken-hearted crying when it's their turn to go to mom's house when they just got used to dad again. Such selfish, wretched human beings. Tearing children apart because you can't grow in Christ. Where are we jealous? Figured out jealousy is demonic. For wherever there is jealousy and selfish ambition, there you will find disorder and evil of every kind. Wherever there is jealousy and selfish ambition, you will find disorder and evil of every kind. Maybe we reverse engineer that verse. Is there any kind of disorder in our lives? Could be because of selfishness. Maybe there's a FOMO working in our lives. We heard somebody got engaged, and now we're jealous that we don't have anybody, only even on the radar. That can bring disorder to your life. You were in your lane, and because your friend got engaged, now all of a sudden you get out of your lane with Christ because you're jealous. But if you'd have stayed in your lane, who knows what God would do for you in six months or a year. You'll never know because you allow jealousy, the demonic wisdom, to pull you out. We have to trust God and reject all this. Where's their disorder? Where's their evil of every kind? Is your life like stirred up with a, a cloud where you can't see? The Bible tells us that jealousy and selfish ambition will stir that cloud up. I don't cave dive, never want to cave dive. I've gone caving with a couple guys who are cave divers. I actually went caving with a guy who's one of the foremost cave divers in the world. But they said at one point, cave diving had the highest mortality rate of any sport in the world, 10% mortality rate. One in 10 cave divers dies. And they communicate with grease boards and a lot of them, they all drown. And they usually write goodbye letters to their loved ones. But how they drown is the horrific thing. They're, they're the world's best divers because you don't go into a cave where you got to take your tank off and push it through a hole and then wiggle through there respirator back and then put it back on your back. These guys are nuts. They die and they have chains to find their way in and out. They die because they get in rooms where the silt or the clay has not been disturbed in thousands of years and they have long flippers and they kick those flippers and it stirs up the silt. Clay, it's going to be technically clay, and that clay will stay unsettled for days or weeks so that they come into that room and they get turned around and they get lost, and they only have so much air on their back. And when they can't find their way out, but they did it to themselves. They kicked their flippers. They were unaware that the clay, the the sediment on the floor was clay. And by kicking their flippers, they were going to stir up this chaos that then blinded their sight and wasted their life. Perfect analogy for what we do sometimes with jealousy, envy, bitterness we stir it up, it clouds our vision, and it prohibits us from seeing the rest of our life. And what we do is we say our goodbyes. Don't be like me. Don't follow after me. Tell my wife and children I love them and I'm sorry. I miss them and they were dear to me. Horrific way to go. Christians live that way. Verse 17, trying to land it. We got two verses. But the wisdom from above is, first of all, pure. they are back to pure again. Pure, 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 pure. Pure. You can't have it too pure. No such thing is too pure. No, no such thing is too pure. When you walk in the wisdom of God, it's going to make you clean. You can't convince me any perversion in your life is sanctioned by God. The things sanctioned by God result in purity. If you're in a dirty relationship, it's not God. Break it up. Amen. Amen. You're in a dirty business deal, not God. Call it off. You're in a strife-filled relationship of some kind, you've got to get with God. If it's marriage, you've got a lot of work on your hands. If you're not married, run away. Fix it. Get purity. Get purity. Get purity. I don't know why folks don't want to live in purity. Dr. Barclay says so many Christians are addicted to strife and chaos. The wisdom from above is, first of all, pure, and it's also peace-loving. So wisdom loves peace. I love me some peace. How many of you use like a sound machine when you go to bed at night? You have a nice little thing that just drowns out any background noise to bring about extra peace. It's peace loving. The wisdom of God is gentle at all times. If you don't have purity, peace, or gentility in your home, there's no wisdom of God there. So We can pray this verse, Lord, I need wisdom to have peace. I need wisdom to have purity. I need wisdom to have gentleness at all times. If you walk in the wisdom of God, you'll make decisions. It's like walking through a minefield. When you have the wisdom of God, you can walk through the minefield of life without blowing stuff up all around you. When you don't have wisdom, you're like an elephant just tramping through a mindful. Boom, boom, boom. And some of you, your marriage is that way. You're both elephants swinging tree trunks at each other and trunk trunks at each other and just blowing things up. And the real collateral damage will be your kids. The wisdom of God is willing to yield to others. This just sounds like a marriage verse. If you're not willing to yield, you're saying, Lord, I want to be a spiritual fool. Spiritual wisdom yields. Spiritual wisdom is gentle at all times. Spiritual wisdom is peace loving. And if you can't be that with certain people, just don't be around them anymore. It's real easy. Certain folks you cut off because they bring chaos to your life. There's even ministers we've had to cut off from our fellowship and not bring back because they brought chaos to us. And if I'll cut off a preacher, you can cut off a friend. And you need to be willing to. It is full of mercy and good deeds so the wisdom of God is full of mercy and good deeds it shows no favoritism that goes back to chapter 2 and it is always sincere that's honesty the south doesn't know much about honesty we know a lot about southern facades but it's good to be sincere it's good to be honest it's good to confess if you don't want God you say lord i don't want you right now let me don't let me die But right now, I don't want you. Be honest with God. If you're struggling, Lord, I'm struggling. If you're confident, Lord, I'm confident. Don't want to be too confident. Talk to God about everything you're feeling. He already hears it. He just wants to hear it from you. Be honest with your spouse if you can. Sometimes you've worked yourself into such hostility, you don't even know how to be honest anymore. I would hate to live in that kind of marriage. South seems to produce them in spades. But we got to at least be honest and say, I don't like this food. Don't wear that, honey. I don't like the way you look in it. Or let's not spend money on that. I don't feel good about it. Be honest. You're acting like these are brand new concepts. Like, what? If you didn't know, the whole name of the game for Christianity is you need to be different than the world. And as an American pastor, I've been born again for 40 years now. I've been spirit-filled since 2000, no, 96. 27 years, going on 28. The church in America looks no different than the world. The only thing that distinguishes most of us is what we do on Sunday morning. And that is a disgrace and a sham. So when we read these things that James wrote to believers who were 14, 15 years old in Christ, shouldn't shock us. We should say, if they can do it, I can do it. They did it without any epistles. This is the first thing. What's an epistle? Here's one. What is it? Read it. What do I do with it? Live up to it. Oh, all right. This is not too bad. We look at it like, you want me to do that? You want me to be in love with my spouse? You want me to have peace in my home? You mean we can't fight like white trash coons? <laughs> yeah, I've, I don't recommend that somebody's going to call the police and you're both going to go to jail for domestic. Verse 18, and those who are peacemakers, there it is again. It doesn't say those who are white trash coons. You know, raccoons fighting each other. (laughs) Listen, I've pastored in this region. I've been a part of this region since 1994. I've been trying to get out of this region since 1994. (laughs) I escaped for six years, and then somebody prayed me back, and they're probably in heaven already, which really upsets me because I can't even complain to them. I know this region. I know the stupidity of the culture of this region. This region does not produce lovely marriages. It doesn't know how to. This region has had 150 years of a very religious, legalistic, ruthless gospel in a denomination that will remain nameless though so you know who I'm talking about. And it produces hard, bitter people. And that's the cultural environment that we grow in. And you got to lean against it. Amen. And we have scripture to lean against it with. Amen. Those who are peacemakers will plant seeds of peace and reap a harvest of righteousness. This goes right with what I taught two Sundays ago. This is the whole premise that our life is the fruit of what we harvest and if you're a peacemaker, you can have a perpetual harvest of righteousness and peace. Peacemakers plant seeds of peace. Peacemakers plant seeds of peace. Blessed are the peacemakers. That's not cult's peacemaker, six-shooter that White Earp killed bad guys with. Though some of you want to use it in your marriage. That's not the peacemaking we're talking about. Peacemakers don't sow seeds of chaos, lust, perversion. They plant seeds of peace and they reap a harvest of righteousness. The footnote of my Bible says a harvest of good things, a harvest of justice. Biblical justice, not modern social justice. Biblical justice. Social justice can go to hell because it shifts with new standards. My point is, social justice now says if you misgender them, that's worse than calling for the genocide of the Jews like they do at Harvard, supported by that president who apparently plagiarizes everybody else's work, and that's okay. Social justice keeps her in place, though she has academically no credibility anymore. But everybody said she was a diversity hire, not really qualified. This, because <laughs> offends you, hook and loop, hook and loop, hook and loop, making your veil, shut me down because I speak in terms of truth and you have a favorite color and agenda you race after. Pun intended. Peacemakers. Hey, I dealt with fornicators. You cheered for that because you're not fornicating like some pervert, but you're still a racist bigot chasing your favorite color. We're an equal opportunity corrector. If you don't want discipleship, go away. When those morons came to Mr. Carter's Lake Ridge Shinyo Academy to teach Taekwondo and we're dealing with Judo, we don't do Taekwondo here. We do Judo here. Go away. It's that simple. You don't like what we got? Go find somebody else that'll lie to you and blow snuff in your ears. Those who are peacemakers will plant seeds of peace and they'll reap a harvest of righteousness, good things, and biblical justice. Peacemakers. That's what we ought to be. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are the peacemakers. I go to bed in peace. I wake up in peace and I dig it. Man, I love it. Don't have trouble going to sleep. Sometimes I have trouble waking up, but that's because it's too early. Not because I got any sin in my life. It's a good place to be and you can be there too if you want to. But listen to me clearly. Jesus Christ purchased us. We're his possession. He commands us to come up. If you don't want to come up, you need to find another church because this isn't the place for you. Amen. In in some regards, this is seal fit. I think what you want is uh, planet fitness. We're trying to make you into something here. You need to go find some jazzercise or some water aerobics and go sweat with granny in a hot tub somewhere. <laughs> Why don't we stand to our feet? That's enough teaching for tonight. Plus we're done with that chapter. Amen.